The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody here tonight. So that's sort of an interesting practice instruction, not just for your formal sits, but all day long, that what I was pointing to at the very end, non-distraction is a kind of love. (laughs) And there's this uh, quote that I read this morning in the talk from Sharon Salzberg. Some of you know Sharon Salzberg. She's actually come to teach here a few times over the last 20 years or so. And uh, one of the senior teachers in this lineage that we call early Buddhism or insight meditation, Vipassana meditation. Common Ground is in that lineage, sometimes also called Theravada Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism you find in Thailand and Burma, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka. But anyway, Sharon, many years ago, maybe now 20, almost 20 years ago, wrote the book called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. It's still quite good, even though it's been around for a while. And she has this uh, quote uh, very early in the book where she writes, Great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love. Great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love. To be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present, is to love. To pay attention is to love. I kind of want to explore that theme tonight. And some of you know Shelley and I for the last month or so and probably onward for another month are using the weekly practice groups to look at this intersection between loving kindness, the basic goodness of the heart, and being aware, being mindfully aware. So that we see that there's not really a a difference Because sometimes we have the sense of being mindful as being distant. Like, oh yeah, I'm aware, life is out there, even my body, the breath is out there. And Mark, as the great witnesser, the great observer, is somehow back in some safe place, untouched by life, nothing can touch me, like that Paul Simon song, you know, I am an island. And it's understandable because there is a sense of equanimity that develops in practice. A sense of equanimity, even invulnerability, stillness, peace, unshakable. But it doesn't come from distancing. It comes from non-fear. Not being afraid of being right in the middle. Not being afraid of feeling. Whatever the feeling is, the intensity, the numbness, pleasant, unpleasant. So that unshakable, you know, because we have this ideal, like it's, it can be, you know, there are certain toxic versions of this ideal, like James Bond, untouchable, you know, perfect. You know, the sort of, it still exists. Not, I mean, James Bond isn't cool anymore, but... You know, we have our own versions of people who are like woke about everything and, you know, cool and hip and and sort of, um, you know, perfect in some way that we might, in our less wise moments, kind of aspire to. But, But real happiness isn't about being perfect and above it all. Real happiness is about not being afraid to be human and not being afraid like to have an imperfect messy heart like i you know common ground um, the leadership especially but you know just generally we're really been curious over these last few years last 10 years especially like issues around racism and issues around sexism we had a great conversation today a bunch of men and people who identify with you know, masculinity. There are about 30 of us. It's the third time we've done it over the last few years. 
and just kind of looking like, what does it mean to be a man? Like kind of waking up to the conditioning, both the genetic conditioning that comes for some of us who were born as men, and then just the cultural conditioning, that identification with masculinity. And, well, obviously it comes with some baggage. And a lot of that baggage isn't very pretty, you know. But it's really good to see it and to learn how to be free even when you have that kind of condition or any kind of condition. It doesn't really matter. There's nobody immune from, you know, unskillful or even worse, toxic conditioning, whether however you identify, whatever, however you see yourself. And this is a much, for me at least, I'm, I'm assuming it's true for you too, I think this is a much more trustworthy version of awakening or liberation or awakening. So instead of like thinking of spirit, the spiritual path that we aspire to being perfect, a being full of light, you know, perfect in all ways, never having a negative thought, Now that it is that's a beautiful image, but in a way you see what happens with that we start to be afraid of our conditioning. We we start to be afraid of who we are. And it doesn't mean because it, it seems that people who really work the practice, really cultivate this present moment awareness, I think generally speaking, people's personalities become more beautiful. You know, they're more beautiful qualities, less of the unskillful qualities over time. But it isn't that they're trying to be perfect that makes them become a better human being. They're being able to be honest and present and relaxed and willing to learn from the conditioning, from the experience, from the reality of their life. They're making peace with being an imperfect human being. And the wonderful side effect of that is that it uproots a lot of the bad habits of our mind, of our hearts. But we're not directly trying to be perfect. We're trying to be free. We're trying to be real, intimate, honest, and free, given that this heart, this conditioned heart, conditioned mind, the habits of this mind and heart, the world that I inhabit as a white male, straight white male, now I have to say older, that I'm in my 60s, an older straight white male, right? It's like, that's some baggage. And uh, so it's like I could be ashamed of that, you know, or try to sort of be somebody I'm not. Or I could be interested in how to be free, how to be honest and free with this life as it is. And I often joke, I mean, some of you are younger, but you know, I, I always joke about the TV shows that I grew up watching and the kind of conditioning effect they had, you know, in the early 60s. And they were so, you know, what we would call today off or inappropriate. I mean, even if you watch something from the 80s, you know, when I was already a young man, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, didn't they know? And especially around sex and and um, gender and race, you know, it's just the stereotypes just so, to us, seem so obviously like that is not skillful programming that was going on. And then when you go back a few more decades, I mean, it's really amazing. So what do we do with that? And this is so relevant to kind of, you know, those of you who are in intimate relationships with another human being or just have friendships or siblings or your parents are still alive or you've got kids (laughs) or even a dog or a cat, you know, and we see our conditioning being expressed. I remember this is back in the early 80s, and I was a relatively new elementary school teacher. And uh, <clears throat> I'd started off teaching second and third grade, which was hard, but workable. And then I, and then I got shifted up to fifth and sixth graders. And uh, 
by then, you know, th- that age, they really know how to get under the skin of adults. <laughs> and uh, there I was with some, you know, fifth and sixth grade boys um, who, and anyway, whatever they were doing, I just saw my dad. There I was, <laughs> except it wasn't me, it was my dad. And, you know, I had a pretty good dad. But, you know, that generation, it was like, they're, they're sort of like really appropriate, really appropriate. But when they get angry, they lose it. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I didn't do anything that could have gotten me fired or anything. But it was just that the anger and the sort of like, uh, basically, it wasn't much more sophisticated than I'm bigger. I'm still, not much, but I'm still bigger than you. And you're going to do what I'm going to say. I mean, I didn't say that, but that was sort of the tone behind it. Like, you have to do what I say because I'm the big guy here, right? And you're going to do what, I have to, what I'm telling you to do. And it's just, it's just sort of shocking to see that, oh yeah, that lives in me. That attitude, that way of being, the way of seeing the world. And there's a lot that lives in us. You know, we can kind of pretty it up. And we can also avoid situations that would trigger that kind of conditioning, those sort of habits. But that kind of gets us in a tight box. Oh, I can't go there. I can't be, because I might sort of expose myself to myself and I don't really want to see it. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of this uh, escape conditioning. I think a lot of us who are attracted to spiritual practice there's a shadow which is like, I'm interested in spiritual practice. I'm interested in being a spiritual person and hanging out with other spiritual people and spiritual organizations because when I'm not, I don't like what I see. I don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to kind of hang out in these places that don't trigger that stuff. you know. And I don't want to be around attractive people because that triggers some energies that I don't like to see. And I don't want to be around people that irritate me because that also triggers stuff in me that I don't want to see, you know. And uh, and then all of a sudden we're just in this box where we just stay at home. And we don't want to be at home either because it makes us depressed. I mean, we've cut ourselves off so much from life, right? And then we need something else. And we're really, we get ourselves into a little box. And then if we're lucky, we come across these teachings from the Buddha that's saying, yeah, there is awakening, there is real freedom, from suffering. I mean, it's really provocative that he says there is actually freedom from suffering. But the freedom doesn't come from escaping. It isn't transcending. It's not like getting to heaven. I mean, the Buddha basically says that because they had similar ideas back then, 2,500 years ago, about you know being again Buddhist cosmology and Hindu, you know, yogic mystical thought. There were all these different realms of existence, not so different than in a Christian context thinking of heaven. But the Buddha said, you know, the that's not going to do it because you're there for a while and then you're somewhere else for a while, right? It just keeps changing. Now, I'm not asking you to believe that. It's not even important to believe. But the the point, the practice point is transcending or escaping the messiness of life is turns out to be the cause for the stress and the negativity, right? I mean, think about how much suffering is set in motion because we're trying to exterminate the threats, right? And so it's not that different than like, get me out of here, get me to some place where everybody's nice, We've turned this life, the messiness of life, into the bad guy, right? So Buddha did teach the Buddhist teachings. They do include like real freedom, but not from escaping, but from a transformation of understanding. And that's why mindfulness, being present, being intimate with life, with the moment, feeling what we feel, not being afraid, really not being shocked. I mean, that's a that's a real sign of somebody. Like, if you want to know, like, talk to people who've been practicing for many decades. What do you notice that's different? 
one of the things that a well-practiced person might say is something like, well, things don't shock me anymore. You know, I'm not surprised. Nothing surprises me because the more we're training the mind to be real, to be intimate, to be present, to see things just as they are, to feel what we feel, then that mind, our mind then, wouldn't be spending time expecting this moment to be any particular way. See, if I'm not expecting this moment to be any particular way, then I'm not surprised when something that you might say is out of the box happens. Because I wasn't expecting something out of the box to not happen. I wasn't expecting the same old thing to happen, and I wasn't expecting any... Because we were actually meeting the moment. That's what being mindful is, just as it is, moment by moment by moment by moment. Even in a sit, you can see this. Like if you're sitting and somebody's cell phone goes off or somebody sneezes, and it's sort of shocking, like how could they leave their cell phone on? What were they thinking? Or why would they be coming if they have a cold? Or you know, whatever. But that's because the mind somehow was with this unseen, I mean, this is unconscious, like, oh, this is perfect. This quiet is going to change. But a mind that's mindful isn't thinking about how it should be or how, how it will be. A mind that's mindful is knowing how alive the present moment is, how wild it is, right? It's just happening moment by moment. I mean, that's one of the very real ongoing insights when we're present is that sense it's very alive precisely because we don't know how things are going to unfold. Because we're not in that cognitive space of predicting. Like, what's Mark going to say next? That would mean we're in the thoughts. But just like being in the present moment, it's a different experience. And that's why in this quote from Sharon, Great Fullness of Being, that fullness, would, as she says in this quote, what fragments the mind, what takes us out of the moment is the thought. You know, Mark is giving a boring talk tonight, or Mark is giving a great talk tonight. Right? If we're in that thought, then we're not in the fullness of the present moment. Right? Where the mind is clinging, holding, identified with the thought and trying to kind of make the ongoing experience experiences that are coming fit that idea, which is stressful. But we can drop the identification of the thought. We could just be in the moment. Like, do we need a story? And as I said at the end of the sit, when we're just there in the fullness of the present moment, like we just drop and... You know, a lot of us use awareness of the body as a kind of a gateway, a doorway to being present. Just feel the body sitting, feel the heat in the body, feel the contact, the pressure points where the body meets the floor or meets the chair. And then because the body's a little bit more concrete, right, we get, we stabilize the present moment awareness, then we might also be able to notice the quality of the mind like the mood. Not trying to fix it, but just, it's almost like sensing, oh yeah, there's there's a human being here, me. <laughs> right? With an attitude, a mood, sensation, old wounds, emotional wounds are there. Nothing is hidden. Where would it be? You know, like the, the cumulative effect of the past, all the unfinished business from the past, where could it be but here? There's no other shelf that, you know, stuff can be hidden. So all of the sort of, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the conditioning I received growing up in the late 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, all that conditioning, all those dispositions or tendencies, that's all right here. Because there's no other place but the present moment, like the past, completely gone, right? Is the future here? There's just this. And one way we talk about that in the Buddhist tradition is sort of how there's just this moment and then it ceases. 
But as it's ceasing, it conditions the arising of the next moment. There's like a little tag team, you know. Remember, you're wrestling. That's one of the things I was conditioned by there. (laughs) Minneapolis, Minnesota was like a, a real headquarters of professional wrestling, especially back, I don't know when it started, but I think maybe late 50s and 60s, but it was a big thing. In fact, one of the kids I grew up with in North Minneapolis became one of the real famous, I mean, he was a real buddy of mine. And then I think in high school, he must have started taking, I don't know if they had steroids back in the in the early 70s when I was in high school, but he just got really big. And he was the, one of the road warriors. Unfortunately, he died in his 40s. Um, so why did I talk about professional wrestling? Huh? Oh, tag team, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like that. <laughs> That's called a, called a tangent. <laughs> yeah, so the moments unfold one moment at a time, but somehow everything has to be transferred from this moment to the next moment, right? That's And that's how we carry the baggage forward. Uh, some of you know Trungpa Rinpoche. He was a very well-known and very controversial uh, Buddhist teacher and uh, Pema Chodron's teacher back in the early days of Buddhism coming to the West, 60, late 60s and 70s. He started Naropa uh, University in Boulder, Colorado. And um, somebody asked him once, so what gets reborn? You know, and the Buddha's in the Buddhist conception of rebirth, we generally don't say reincarnation. We talk about rebirth. There's a rebirthing process. So what gets reborn? And his response was, well, the neurotic tendencies are what get reborn. Because in early Buddhism especially, if there aren't any neurotic tendencies left, there's not rebirth. It's a very, and we don't want to go into it tonight, but you know, it's a very sort of interesting statement that when an enlightened being dies, that body dies, then that's why Nibbana means cessation. The fire goes out. Now in early at the time of the Buddha, when a fire goes out, it goes that you know it was they didn't you know have the science we have now, but the idea was it goes back to a potential state. Like, the potential of fire is everywhere, and when the conditions are right, the flames reappear. So this sort of going back to this potential state. So it's just really interesting, this birth and death of each moment, and part of a moment arising and ceasing is the conditioning of the next moment that's coming into being. So when we're present, with our body, with the activity of the mind, the activity of feeling, the activity of being in the environment of seeing and hearing and sensing, right? It's very alive. It's very wild in a way. But as I think I might have mentioned in the sit, there's something very pleasant. It's subtle, but it's really satisfying in a kind of unworldly way. It's like different than a lot of the other pleasures we have, like lying in a comfortable bed or eating good food or some really pleasant physical affection we might have with a, another human being or a cat or a dog, where they're just, you know, that sort of more ordinary, you know, experience of camaraderie, friendliness. This is really the pleasure of simplicity of putting down a load that often we don't even realize realize we're holding. We put it down. So there's something about coming to the present moment where that fragmenting part of the mind, the part of the thinking mind that fragments experience, divides it up to good and bad, me and you, right? That because we're being present, And because being present with the body, with the heart, with what we're feeling, with the activity of the mind, being present as each moment comes and goes, comes and goes, right? There's really 
no bandwidth left to be constructing concepts of what's happening and concepts of what's good and what's bad and what's me and we're just not doing that activity of framing things and identifying with the thoughts. So all of that sense of separation starts to fall away. So let's just do a little experiment, see if that's true. You can keep your eyes open or you can close your eyes. But just like drop into the experience of the body, feel, for example, the ordinary pressure of your buttocks, your sits bones against the chair or the cushion. Maybe you feel some temperature, some warmth there. To the degree that the mind, the heart is willing to really open and be interested and relax. Just with that ordinary experience of pressure, contact. Notice that things become more and more simple as concepts fall into the background. And just see if you can sense that deepening experience of fullness. Is there, can there be a sense of safety in being intimate with the body in this simple way? Even if there's some unpleasant sensations, just giving them permission because the unpleasant feeling is something that comes and goes. It's not going to be permanent. Maybe it's okay for things to be unpleasant. Maybe it's okay to really relax. And lastly, just sense this presence as a kind of love. Love is this willingness to include, to not push away. Some of you probably, you can move around again. But there's nothing wrong with staying intimate. (laughs) Some of you remember Mother Teresa, this very well-known Catholic nun. I got to see her when she visited San Francisco. I was living there at the time, back in the 80s. And uh, she said once, in this life, We cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. And this is really, I think, a really good meditation instruction. Because it's kind of a simple thing. You know, when you set aside 20 minutes at home to do some awareness, some mindful awareness practice, or 45 minutes, depending on what you got, it's kind of an ordinary thing. I mean, you're just putting the dog in the other room and, letting the people you live with know to leave you alone and shutting your cell phone off and finding a comfortable place where you can sit relatively still, relatively upright to support clarity and wakefulness. And and then what are we doing? We're just being present with the activity of the body and the mind. And there's, you know, different techniques that support it, like being with the breath or whatever. But basically, we're just remembering to recognize the present moment. We're creating conditions that make it a little bit easier to remember to recognize the present moment. Because you don't like being present, because that's really what we're practicing. We're training the mind to be present. So you see, we don't actually need a different or a special kind of moment. Any moment will do, right? Do you see the difference between distraction and non-distraction? It's really more about 
remembering the possibility of being non-distracted. And then we get distracted. And then at some point we remember. And the word sati that gets translated as mindfulness, it actually, you know, the, um, the underlining meaning of the word sati is to remember. So mindfulness is very much connected with remembering. Remembering the present moment. That's the effort. It's a very refined effort. A lot of us associate mindfulness with focusing the attention on a particular object. That's just the tool that can be used, often is misused, right? And then people start getting headaches because they're sort of visually focusing on their nose where the breath is. And they wonder why they're getting a headache because they're misinterpreting being mindful with focusing. It's not, that's not what mindfulness means. It means remembering, oh, it's like this. This is already being known. The sensitivity to the present moment is always there. Like, can you stop yourself from being sensitive to the present moment right now? There's no off button. We can only be distracted or asleep. But the sensitivity to the present moment is always there. So we're just remembering, we're remembering, we're remembering, and then we're forgetting, 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 and then we're remembering again and remembering. And people who are more skilled, they just remember more. Oh yeah, it's like this, just this happening, just this activity of the body and mind, present moment happening, being known, just this being known. And then... This quote from Mother Teresa, in this life we cannot do great things, that itself is kind of provocative, right? And it really strips away the ego because it's the ego that wants to do great things and have people notice, right? We cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. So that's really, so here we're doing a small thing. We're just remembering this is being known. We're remembering that the present moment is already being known. The heart or the mind is already sensitive. So we're remembering that the heart is already sensitive to the present moment. It's already feeling, right? You don't actually do the feeling, do you? We remember that, like for example, the sensations in the body, we remember that the body's being felt. Just like if there's some emotional content now in the heart, we remember that that emotional content is there being felt. Or we forget. So either we're forgetting, which is called distraction, or we're remembering, which is called mindful awareness, being mindful, being awake. right? And so we're strengthening this muscle. And that is kind of the great thing. Because it's like Mother Teresa says, it's really a great love to care enough about our life to be present, to be awake. And so much of what drives the uh, unskillful, the hateful, the unjust behavior in the world, whether it's us doing it or somebody else doing it, is when we're more and more often distracted or disconnected, not awake, not intimate, not in that place of great love, then we we rightly feel disconnected. So then we can justify doing extreme things that cause others harm because we're looking for a hit to feel alive. So I'm going to take something that isn't mine, or I'm going to uh, you know, act out my sexual energy in a way that causes harm because I need a hit. I need something intense because I've been so not present, I feel a little dead. The Buddha even says that. One of the famous statements from the Buddha's teachings is, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, is the path to awakening to freedom. Those who are negligent, those who aren't intimate, who aren't present, are as if already dead. Because it's true. When we spend the day, or most moments of the day in our obsessive thoughts. Our life feels very dry and it doesn't feel juicy. It doesn't feel alive. It doesn't feel 
resonant or satisfying. So we get really desperate for some hit on the internet or some hit with some extreme food, <laughs> extreme behavior or whatever. You know, we we get, this is what uh, causes us to get caught in addictive patterns and consumerism because we're looking for meaning but in all the wrong places, right? But how about, it's like this is what's so transforming, you know, when we have a meditative experience, whether we're doing a formal meditation or just in the middle of a busy day, but we have some of those ordinary moments where there's that remembering. Oh yeah, it's like this, it's like this. And we're kind of in that very wild, very alive, very real, very non-conceptual place of the present moment. And there's a kind of nutriment. It's more about what's not there, right? The delusion, in Buddhist terms, we'd say the delusion isn't there. Delusion, a very useful definition of delusion is believing our thoughts are true. What are thoughts? They're an abstraction, right? Like when I say I'm at common ground tonight, that's a thought. It's not true. I'm at common ground tonight. Right, like, you see, what? Let's just tune in not to the thought I'm at common ground, but to the reality. Right, so this reality of the body sensations being the way they are, and the mind, the activity of the mind. This is being at common ground. So the thought, that abstraction, that's like as if already dead. When we live with the, as if the thought is the true thing. So I don't really need to be here. It's it's interesting how, like, especially in social situations, when we're actually mindful, like with a, even with a partner, or even with like a cat or a dog. So something that you're really comfortable in. A lot of people, if it, if it's your dog or cat, really comfortable, and you just really come in the present moment. It's funny how we can be a little. It can feel a little self-conscious, like I don't think I'm supposed to be. You know, it's like, I'm not supposed to actually be here in my life in that intimate, sensitive. I'm supposed to be in my thoughts about the present moment. So really explore that in the weeks ahead about just how intimacy itself has that fullness of love. And it's really, it's not so much that we're bringing a lot of love. It's not that idealistic sense of love. As I said, it's more about what's not there. The mind isn't caught up, isn't identified in its thoughts about things. So it's in that fullness and wildness. But there's a lot of, the w- one of the reasons we enjoy and we get caught in the habit of being in our thoughts is when we're in our thoughts about our life, about me, about you, about whatever, things feel a little bit more set, right? Because we get to define that world. It's like we've created it. We've literally constructed our thoughts. But our partner is never our thoughts about our partner. And your dog is never your thoughts about the dog. I get that sometimes with my cat, our cat, right? It's sort of like, oh, that's bear. That's what we call our cat, bear, you know? And I've got a lot of, you know, thoughts about the cat. But when I really show up, that sort of experiencing, the moment-to-moment experiencing, being with the cat, interacting with the cat, it's never, never matches the thoughts. They're like two different things. Uh, One teacher uses, like, Eating the meal is never the same as looking at the menu. They're related. My thoughts of the cat are related to this experiencing being, this interaction. But they're really worlds apart. The menu and the eating, my thoughts about you, and the actual experience of interacting with another human being or any being, or even interacting with grass, which will be coming up soon, hopefully. 
So that's our homework assignment. Please take it up. Looking for those moments of intimacy, noticing the sense of fullness, noticing the wildness. Notice how alive the heart, the mind is in those moments, in the uncertainty and the wildness of those moments, how healing it is. Right? And then you'll notice the mind, the thinking mind wanting to grasp it so that it can own the good feeling. And then you'll lose it. But that's okay. We'll learn. We'll learn slowly with a lot of missteps how to inhabit the present moment more and more and more. And less and less dependent on being in our thoughts about this and that. So we have about 15 minutes because we've all been at it in our own way for a while. It'd be nice to hear from some people questions you might have about the talk tonight, but also just comments from your own practice. Zach, you want to start us off? So I guess I had a question about um, about social pretenses. Like, so if you ha- if you have like uh, issues with or not issues, but um, like we were talking about, could, could you could you say the same thing about like turning off your mindfulness in the same way as like social pretenses too? Would that be a similar kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's what's interesting, like when we see our habits of having a pretense, like wanting to be seen in a certain way in an environment, particular environment, like whatever that might be, wanting to be respected when you go home and you're with your family. But the the thing about that is it gets complicated when I think I have to drop that pretense. It's a little bit easier when I train myself just to be in my body. So that embodied awareness is a little bit easier because to the degree I can have that full, wholehearted presence with my body, and then it's relatively easy to have it with the emotional heart, right? And other aspects of the present moment. To the degree that I'm really there with that, then I have to drop the pretense. But I'm not sort of directly trying to drop the pretense. I'm more opening, being interested in the embodied experience. And that's really a, a basic teaching about habits. You know how it is, like we get fixated on a habit. I really got to stop being self-conscious. I really got to stop being defensive. I really got to stop being controlling. I mean, I really think that about myself, all three of those things. But getting obsessed about not being controlling is just more controlling. So there's, it's like it's true. It's good to see that, oh, yeah, I really do need to abandon that habit energy. It's not helping anybody. But then the question is how to do that. And one way to do that, this is so amazing how it's simple, like really trusting embodiment. And the key here will be, because it's, it's unpleasant often to be in the body, because we're carrying around a lot of stress from not being in the body mostly, <laughs> right? But it's there nonetheless. But the thing is, it also feels good, but the good feeling is going to be more subtle than the unpleasantness of feeling all the cumulative stress when we open to the body. But it feels good to be present. And if you tune into the pleasantness of being present, being intimate, that will really help the being wholehearted. And when we're wholehearted, a lot of that stressful pretense, you know, social positioning or whatever, locating ourselves, being identified with identities in an unskillful way, because there are skillful ways to use identities. But it also can be uh, kind of a, yeah, just a trap for the mind. Thanks, Zach. Let's pass the mic over here. You know, there's there's a slight, I, I love what you say, and um, in my practice, I think I'm finally figuring things out for myself and gaining confidence in that. But in what you say, there there is a contradiction going on because... To say, for example, I'm being too self-conscious, you're making a judgment about yourself. And in, in the trouble with that is, it, it, all this, for at least speaking for me, each of these things that go on with I, on me have, you know, all these things just that trigger me have different flashpoints, you know, different intensities. So it's not like anything comes along and say, oh, that's just me being me. There's, there's baggage or there's intensity to there. 
and uh, kind of getting back to your point, um, judging and self-consciousness is a bit destructive for me. I'm, I'm, I'm much better being in the moment and not worrying about myself. And uh, you know, so do you want to minimize that self-judgment? You know, it, boy, because this, that's the same thing, right? Well, it, it, here's the deal. Here's what I figured. Take it for what it's worth. This evening, I had a really nice sit. I was just very quiet. In fact, I was enjoying it. And I felt, you know, the thought came to me is, am I just going for the enjoyment? And the answer was no, because I felt really like my heart was expanding with that. And so at the end of the day, there's there's no dialogue here to answer or anything to act uh, within my mind, it's more of just the awareness, as I guess judge with my heart, am I at a comfortable place where I'm allowing stuff to come in? If I go back and say, well, have I been here too long that I'm hooked on it, you know, sort of thing, that kind of disrupts things. And it's unnecessary, it seems to me. You know, you kind of see where I'm going with this? Is that how, how do you not disrupt yourself trying to even be that much more mindfulness, you know, have that much more mindfulness. But, you know, it's it's really not any different than if we're caretaking a good friend or a dying parent or a sick dog, right? The way compassion moves, it's it's moving toward ourself in the same way that it would move to another. And so it's like we don't want to do harm. We want to intervene. We want to show up in a way that's helpful. And if we make a mistake and our intervention is not helpful, we understand, okay, that wasn't helpful. I still want to be helpful. So we're learning along the way. But the the point is, when we care about this life, we're going to want to intervene. We're going to want to do something that's helpful. And that's natural, and it can't be stopped. Compassion is also a natural and impersonal force. So your point is that some interventions aren't helpful. But that's uh, yeah, but that's okay because if there's awareness we'll learn. So it isn't about not intervening, it's about intervening skillfully. Being present is an intervention. Would the skillfulness come when you start realizing you're becoming tight because of your need to hang on to the peacefulness that sort of thing? Yeah, or just whenever you see what's set in motion, what kind of seeds are being planted, what gets set in motion. Is that really going? So, you know, we need this aspiration to, you know, to move in the direction of ease and peace and skill where we're not contributing to suffering in the world for ourselves, for others, right? So we have this aspiration and then, you know, and that matures and gets refined over the years, of course, like exactly what we aspire to. Like sometimes when we're getting started, we just want relief. You know, it's I just want this pain to go away. But that's where we're at. And we shouldn't judge, you know, our aspiration. And then we make some interventions and we see, does it make the pain go away or not? No, it made it worse. Okay, don't do that again. And then we just learn, just even through trial and error sometimes. Yeah. And the real key is how awareness supports the learning. Yeah, this is probably the last one, Ruth. Hi, uh, Ruth. So um, some of us have kind of weird jobs. Like I do, I, I'm, I do film lecturing. and Film I, lecturing? Lecturing, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I present films. That's one of my jobs. And, you know, there's a lot of stress involved in that to, for me, uh, public speaking, but it's something that I feel is challenging and so worthwhile. Um, but I had an experience last week where I was feeling like I feel the the compulsion to be clever. You know what I'm saying? And this isn't for young students. These are for older adults. So it's a different uh, milieu. So I really need to impress them and that's my job. But when I, I realized that I was getting caught up in this cleverness, this need to be clever, and I dropped down into actually watching this documentary, which was about a particular chef who had uh, lost his brother. It was in search of Israeli cuisine. Anyway, like when I kind of pierced the veil a little bit of that and realizing that, hey, this film is actually about real people, although it's mediated, right? I mean, it was filmed at a different time. These people aren't even in the room. But that did help me. Like I just was struck by how I had been so like pornographic in a sense about 
this material and so um like mercenary just like i was going to use this and needed to perform and that sort of thing and so if do you have any insights or thoughts about that sort of you know multi-layered material when it's not just being in our body because we have to speak words right we have to present something i mean i suppose you're familiar with this concept (laughs) (laughs) you know but like how but then uh, there's another layer, right? Because I'm presenting not the Dharma necessarily. I'm presenting like ostensibly just this piece of media or this art, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really similar to what Zach was bringing up about pretense. And and the question is, what would happen if being present got to the top of the priority list and being a good teacher got down a notch or two, right? So maybe the top is just to be intimate, and then just below that is maybe the intention to not cause harm. You know, let's just imagine there are a few. And then, like, helping the students learn about this film and understand how it connects to other films and some of the themes in the class is sort of number three or four or something like that. And it's the same thing with like being a good parent or being a good lover or being a good citizen. Like if we put being present, intimate, always at the top, would it really take away from some of these other more pragmatic intentions that we need to have, like to be a good professor or a good teacher? Because you might find that having this spiritual intention to be radically present or intimate doesn't take away, it actually improves everything that comes after it in terms of intention or priority. Yeah, and I find that that's true like here in this seat too. And definitely like wanting to give a good talk is actually not one of the supporting causes for giving a good talk, right? Yeah, and it's just, uh, that's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, thanks everyone. Really nice to hear those comments and questions. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough for one or two breaths together. Just to enjoy a few seconds of silence and to let go of the words. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.